In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. The bush burned and was not consumed. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. This morning, we read two fascinating stories. And I'll just pause here to tell you that Trinity Sunday is a bold reminder that the story of our faith is a unified story, just as the nature of God is a unified nature, even if encountered, and thank goodness it is, encountered in distinct persons. So this morning, we've got two unified stories of two naturally living things, one a plant, probably a thorn bush, and the other a human being inhabited two natural things inhabited by that which is outside nature, that which is supernatural. While there is a vast difference between a bush and a person, most often certainly, um, what they do have in common is that they will go the way of all nature. Both will die. This is the fundamental problem of all life, death. A fire should expedite this process. Literally for the bush, and, and I guess you could say, could say figuratively for human beings, when we, when we experience and talk about burnout. Instead, we have a fire that does the opposite, that somehow intensifies the life of the bush. And in John, while there is no observable, observable fire, we have the spirit, which we learned last week, is a flame of fire which ignites a person from within. The fire and the wind which blows where it will, and the wind which intensifies the fire, which will give another kind of life altogether to Nicodemus. And this is the fire not of death but of life, but of course it's a holy fire and you have to approach it very carefully as Moses did because it might kill him if he doesn't allow God to to render him holy before he approaches. This is the fire which burns within a bush, which burns within a person, which does not burn out, neither the fire nor its host. A fire feeds on that which it is burning until that fuel is burned up, at which point the fire itself burns out. This kind of fire is derivative of life. Its energy comes from the source on which it feeds. But, In the story of the burning bush, the fire is independent of its source, the bush. This is why it continues to burn without extinguishing the bush, without burning it up. The fire is in the bush, but it's independent of the bush. It is the I am who I am. God is being itself. God exists of himself. And the bush burns with God. And we, in turn, learn from this that we are dependent on God. And the question for this morning, are you burning with God or are you burning out? Consider Moses on the backside of nowhere. As far as he was concerned, this is what his life had come to, tending sheep in the desert. Maybe he felt at this point a little useless, a little used up. Maybe out of sheer boredom, he turns aside to look at the bush. I don't think we need to attribute some some good quality or characteristic to Moses as the reason he turned aside. You know, like he's aware, he's super attentive to God. At this point, he wasn't. He, he's just bored. All he's thinking about is sheep. They're not that interesting. 
But Moses has to turn aside for the story to move forward. It's a critical turn, and it's just a turn. That's it. And only when he turns, only when he marvels and begins to wonder, does God call to him? And of course, where Moses is, God is, because God is present everywhere. He chooses a bush to be the portal where movement between heaven and earth take place. This little bush, in Hebrew, saneh, is a cognate to Sinai, which we all know is God's mountain. The bush is on fire with God, and later in Exodus 19, the mountain is on fire with God. This is a fire that spreads, a holy spreading. That's Moses. Consider now Nicodemus coming in stealth under the cover of darkness to Jesus. Not the mountain of God, but the Son of God. Wherever God is, there is the mountain of God. And Jesus was the Son and the mountain. And who knows that Nicodemus himself has perhaps reached both the height of all religion. He was a ruler of the Jews after all. And also the end of religion. Perhaps his entire religious enterprise has burned itself out. That might seem like an extreme statement, but there are clues in the text that Nicodemus recognizes in Jesus what he himself had not attained or achieved in his supremely religious life. And that is God's presence. Nicodemus says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Moses turns aside to look. Nicodemus searches out the one whom God is with, in whom God is present. Nicodemus is looking for another kind of fire. Not the one that burns up and burns out, but the one which gives life. Are you burning with God or are you burning out trying to burn for God? Burnout. Is, the going, is it going the way of all nature, trying to do in our own nature what only the one outside of nature can do? The one who created life, the one who gives us life, the one who sustains our life and regenerates us, gives us new life. I just read a fascinating article on burnout which described the prevalence of burnout worldwide. A U.S. study said that uh, four out of five people think they're burned out. And then this, this article posited that we can attribute burnout in part to declining church membership. In 1985, 71% of Americans belonged to a house of worship. In 2020, only 47%. Many of the recommended ways to wellness, mindfulness, and meditation are secularized versions of prayer, Sabbath keeping, and worship. But then the article went on to say that the emergence of the prosperity gospel made American Christianity a religion of achievement. Actually, praying, honoring the Sabbath, and attending worship services don't seem to prevent people who are religious from burning out. Religious websites and magazines, too, are full of warnings about burnout, including for the clergy. Although burning out is supposed to be about working too much, People now talk about all sorts of things that aren't work as if they were. You have to work in your marriage, work in your garden, work out, work harder in raising your kids, work on your relationship with God. And then this startling and interesting question, are you driving yourself too hard to become an excellent Christian? 
I visit Jim Leonard. We sit on his porch, have coffee. We don't talk about becoming excellent Christians. We don't have high-octane theological discussions. Jim says he loves me. That's a little startling and wonderful. Jim asked me this question. If you were to locate the presence of God in your body, where is it and what does it feel like? And I answered, well, let me think about that. <laughs> God is in my head, an idea, abstract. I get a thought, I said to Jim, and I write it down. I write it down in my Bible. He said, don't do that. Don't write it down. <laughs> I'm not saying that thinking, thinking about God is bad. God forbid. Thinking is wonderful, but I'm only saying you can't think your way to God any more than you can figure out scientifically how a bush can be on fire and not burn up. Or how you can be born a second time. Nicodemus thinks about it and gets it wrong. The fire of God ignites our whole being and the flame is ignited from within. Nicodemus does not yet understand that being born from above is being born from within. At first birth, we are born into the world and we struggle to control that world. At second birth, the creator of the world is born into us. How do you keep from burning out? Burn from within. This is Trinity Sunday. You see how, how I've pretty much avoided the subject. <laughs> but not really. I am talking all about the Trinity. Not an idea, not an abstraction, but as a presence, the work of God within us. Theologians talk about the economy of the Trinity, which focuses on, on what God does. I think of the Trinity as three on one, not three in one, though it is that certainly, but it three on one. It takes three of God to save, redeem, and liberate one of me. Praise God. In his reflections on the burning bush, the late rabbi Jonathan Sachs notes that after God gets Moses' attention, when Moses asks God his name, God says, Ehe asher ehe. Translated into, into Greek as ego emi ho'on. Forgive both my Hebrew and Greek pronunciation. And now the Latin as ego sum ki sum, meaning I am who I am or I am who he is. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that the early and medieval Christian theologians all understood the phrase to be speaking about ontology, the metaphysical nature of God's existence as the ground of all being. It meant that he was being itself <clears throat> timeless. <clears throat> I'm stumbling over these big words. I'm getting hoarse over these big words. Timeless, being itself, immutable, incorporeal, understood as a subsisting act of all existing. But, Rabbi Kushner says, this is the God of Aristotle and the philosophers, not the God of Abraham and the prophets. Ehe, asher ehe, means none of these things, he says. It means I will be what where, what, where, or how I will be. The essential element of the phrase is a dimension omitted by all the early Christian translations, namely the future tense. God is defining himself as a Lord of history who is about to intervene in an unprecedented way to liberate a group of slaves from the mightiest empire of the ancient world and lead them on a journey towards liberty. I will be who I will be means that I will enter history and transform it. I will enter people and transform them. And Moses and his people would know God not through his essence, but through his acts. Therefore, the future tense is key here. They could not know him until he acted. Now, 
Christian theology would reinforce this so that the God acts, act, God acts so that we can know his essence. However, I do believe that God is the I am. You can't have the future I will be without the present I am. And I am with you. Both coalesce, both come together. This is the unity of the Trinity. And God's acts and his essence come together in the person of Jesus. And it is precisely and completely and radically this reality that Nicodemus is just beginning to absorb. And we see the glimmers of the fire in that evening encounter, the light within, illuminating and transforming already Nicodemus. Nicodemus is reaching toward the future. He's on a quest, a journey. I will be what I will be, future tense. He goes toward it, but he also grows toward it until finally that future has captivated his heart in the presence and person of Jesus. So that Nicodemus is not consumed by religion, but is filled with the love of Jesus and the love for Jesus, which has ignited his heart. You know how we know that. The Gospel of John tracks Nicodemus through that story of Jesus. Nicodemus is a parallel story. And John 19, Nicodemus is there at the cross, taking down Jesus' body with Joseph of Arimathea, handling a corpse which is taboo for religious leaders. Nicodemus is performing a service of love in Jewish piety and making known his relationship with Jesus and not yet fully knowing that this dead Jesus is already being reborn in his heart. Already, but not fully yet. The future has become the eternal present because it is also the eternal presence. Moses' fire in the, in the bush has jumped into Nicodemus' heart. May it do the same for all of us. Amen.